the Cinema Silo, a podcast where three sisters recreate the post-movie experience. I'm Annie. I'm Frankie. And this is Jessie. This week, we are wrapping up our summer series with my pick, Alfonso Caron's 2001 coming-of-age drama, Itumama Tambien. The basic plot centers around two best friends in their final summer of high school in Mexico City in 1999. Julio, played by Gael Garcia Bernal, and Tenoch, played by Diego Luna, meet an older woman named Luisa, played by Maribel Verdu, the Spanish wife of Tenoch's pretentious older cousin. What ensues is a sexy, funny, coming-of-age story, and there are plenty of spoilers ahead. With their girlfriends in Europe for the summer, Julio and Tenoch meet Luisa at a family wedding. Luisa is new to Mexico, and in trying to impress her, they describe an idyllic beach that hardly anyone visits and offer to take her there. Later, Luisa's husband calls her to confess his infidelity, the same day that she receives unfortunate news from her doctor. The next day, needing to run away, she accepts the boy's beach vacation invitation. Julio and Tenoch scramble to put together a road trip to this fictitious beach, and the three take off. Over the course of the trip, Luisa sleeps with both Julio and Tenoch, creating jealousy that ignites a rivalry underlying their lifelong friendship. The boys then reveal they've both slept with the other's girlfriend, and swear that their friendship is ruined forever. In the end, they find that the fictitious beach they were looking for is actually real. There, the, the trio drink and dance in the beach bar, culminating in a threesome. <laughs> Barely able to look at each other after, the boys actually do end their friendship and drive back to Mexico City, while Luisa chooses to stay at the beach. Running into each other a year later, the boys have transitioned into more mature men, and Tenoch informs Julio that Luisa died of cancer soon after they left. There's a lot that I want to dig into here. <laughs> Where do we want to start? <laughs> I want to talk about the cast just so that, you know, everyone can have these actors in mind as we're discussing them. I don't think this is that sexy of a movie. I just want to throw that out there. But the actors are well known now. So we got to have them in mind. What do you mean this isn't that sexy of a movie? We see so much bare ass. <laughs> We see so many cheeks clapping, like Jesse. <laughs> what would you say is a sexy movie then? Oh, I would say Brokeback Mountain is super sexy. I would okay. say The Bridges of Madison County is super sexy. <laughs> I would say Normal People, that's pretty sexy. This is like real, yeah, real butts, real awkward. Nudity is not necessarily equivalent to sexy. No, that's true. You know, sex is not always sexy. Yeah, I think that's part of the coming-of-age journey in this film as well. The boys start off being very selfish in bed and not being very good. And part of their coming-of-age is learning to give and to be in the moment, which culminates, like, and we'll talk about this later, but in a very um, twisty kind of ending, I would say. It goes beyond what I think most Anglo-English-speaking movies would take it. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot about this movie. <laughs> a lot for us to talk to, but let's start with the cast. 
Okay. Diego Luna and Gael Garcia Bernal. These are two sexy men. <laughs> I love Gael Garcia Bernal so much, but he, they, they're so young in this movie. They're so young. They are so young. They are such good teenage boys. <laughs> they're not sexy in this movie. Right. <laughs> exactly. No. They are just gross and awkward and cringe and embarrassing. Yeah, Gael is from, well, I know him from Mozart in the Jungle, the Amazon series. Jesse. <laughs> At least she didn't say that she knows him from Letters to Juliet, that Amanda <laughs> Seyfried movie. <laughs> where do you know him from? Um, this movie, The Motorcycle Diaries, where he plays Che Guevara. Um, there was a really good one he did almost 10 years ago now called No, that was about the oh, yes. advertising, about the plebiscite. In Chile in the 80s. Yeah, against Pinochet. I knew him in, from that, but I... But you really knew him from Mozart in the Jungle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then Diego Luna, I was like, why does this guy look so familiar? I, I know him from another totally terrible <laughs> movie reference. No, no. He has buttons in open range. <laughs> Oh my god. Uh, Kevin Costner, West Nerd, everybody. <laughs> From 2003, after Ichimama Tambien. Ichimama launched them to like international yeah. fame. And they got roles beyond roles in Mexico. Before this, they were both telenovela stars. Mm -hmm. They actually knew each other since they were babies. Their mothers were friends. Wow. They grew up together and they both wanted to be actors. And so they were always auditioning for the same roles. So they do have that lifelong friendship and a bit of rivalry that the characters in Itumama Tambien have. Like, that's natural for the two of them. Mm -hmm. So Alfonso Cuaron cast Gael Garcia Bernal because Cuaron had seen an early cut of Alejandro González Iñárritu, Amores Peros, which had not yet been released, but features Gael Garcia Bernal. It's a very gritty film. And Quaron was like, I need him. He is my guy. He has to be in my movie. And then when he was auditioning tons of other people to play Diego Luna's character, when he did bring in Diego Luna, Gael said, well, I'd love it if you cast Diego. Like, he's my best friend. <laughs> wow. Um, That's great. And Quaron was like, I don't know. I have reservations. You know, Diego's really famous. He's like a teen idol. I want this movie to be more gritty, like how you were in Amores Peros. I want that energy. I don't really want the telenovela teeny bopper energy from Diego Luna. And Gael was like, why don't you just like watch us hang out? And I think you'll understand why there's no one better to play him. And so he really like advocated for Diego Luna. That's cool. Buds being buds, real life buds on screen buds. What else has Diego Luna been in? He was in Milk. That's the first thing I remember seeing him in. And he was also in that Dirty Dancing sequel, Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. Havana Nights, yes. <laughs> um, he was in Narcos Mexico, but I think his biggest role is Cassian Andor in Rogue One. The Star Wars movie. Oh. That's it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And he's actually getting his own show called Andor on Disney Plus. Oh, cool. That they started shooting this year. We'll get a lot more Diego Luna coming up. 
which is great. Awesome. Gael Garcia Bernal, like recently, he was the voice of Hector and Coco. <gasps> Coco. Yeah. <laughs> Coco. Another Disney thing like Diego's doing. But he has a movie that's coming out right now that I've been seeing lots of trailers and ads for, which is the new M. Night Shyamalan movie, Old. He's in that? What is it called? Old? Yeah, Old. So they both have some high profile stuff coming up. So it's fun to go back to the early days of their careers see them together in Itu Mama Tambien. They also founded a film production company. And it produced a lot of movies that they then both performed in or directed. And um, yeah, it's really cool. They also then founded a documentary film festival together oh. for like humanitarian documentaries. Look at these guys. Yeah, they're doing lots of good stuff. So who's, um, who is the actress that plays Luisa? Maribel Verdu. She is a Spanish actress and had already been a famous actress in Spain before this film came out. The only other thing that I've seen her in is Pan's Labyrinth. She plays the rebel housekeeper. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie. No. She's kind of the one that's involved with the rebels in the woods mm. and like connects the rebels to the story. That film came out after Itumama Tambien. Guillermo del Toro directed Pan's Labyrinth, and he cast her in that role based on her performance in Itu Mama Tambien. Mm. He saw a sadness in her that he thought would be perfect for the part. Interesting. Part of the brilliance of the casting of these three actors is that the director did a lot of rehearsal and a lot of shooting with just the boys, and really built out and fleshed out their relationship, not just as people but as the characters and Diego Luna looking back on in a retrospective of this movie he said that one of his favorite parts of the movie is the fact that they the two of them got to lend the characters their friendship oh that's such a nice I love that yeah yeah I like that he then told this really great story of when they first met Maribel Verdu Diego, Gael, and Alfonso Caron, and they flew out to Spain to Maribel's house, and they all just were instantly in love with her. <laughs> and they went from being like these three boys just hanging out, goofing off, having a good time, to being like men competing for her attention, <laughs> is how they described it. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, but it was also, you know, Alfonso was too. It wasn't just the two of us. <laughs> We all wanted her to laugh at our jokes. <laughs> and then when she, when Maribel Verdu described the exact same meeting, having them come to her house, she said that they all looked at her like she was the most beautiful woman they'd ever seen, and they treated her like she was Julia Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> so I love that. And and that actress, she is from Spain. She is Spanish. Diego and Gael, they are from Mexico, just like the characters. And so there also is a bit of a language divide, like a dialect divide between the two. And she even asks questions Right. Like, in the movie, she says, well, what does that mean? Because she doesn't know the slang. Yeah. And when they gave her the script, they gave her a glossary. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. I like that. That really contributes to her being an outsider and probably really helped the actress get into that role. Even as, like, a native English speaker who does not speak Spanish, you can hear the difference in their accents. Like, you can tell that Luisa is from a different place she speaks differently she pronounces words differently she has 
like totally different. It's much like harder and like more like sibilant sounding almost. So Alfonso Cuaron, what else has he done? Did he do a Harry Potter? <laughs> yeah, he did Prisoner of Azkaban, which is the best Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. He did Roma a couple of years ago. Yes. That Netflix movie, it was the first one to be nominated. Uh, Best Picture. Yes. It was also the first Mexican film to win Best Foreign Language Film. Okay. Cool. And it also won Best Cinematography and Best Director. Before Itamama Tambien, his first film was called Solo Cantu Pareja. And that is with a lot of the same guys behind the camera that he then does Itamama Tambien. And that was pretty successful. And then he got caught up in the Hollywood system. So he leaves like the Mexican uh, film scene and goes up to Hollywood and he does A Little Princess. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and his first movie, the one like the one that he has set in Mexico, is about like suicide and AIDS, and it's like totally not someone you would expect to then get picked up to do a little princess. After A Little Princess, he does Great Expectations, okay, right. a modernized version mm-hmm. of the Dickens novel with Ethan Hawke, Gwyneth Paltrow, Robert De Niro, Anne Bancroft, this crazy A-list cast um, in the 90s. So was Itumama Tambien like the movie that he was like, okay, now that I've got all this cred in Hollywood, this is the movie that I really want to do? And now I have the resources and influence to do the movie I want to do. Yeah, he said that he felt like he was lost, that he got lost in the Hollywood system. For Itumama Tambien, it was coming back to his roots, telling the stories he wanted to tell with his brother, because he co-wrote this film with his brother, Carlos. After this, his follow-up to this is the most critically acclaimed of the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> I mean, it's the best one. I, I mean, I don't... Would you argue against that? No. Prisoner of Azkaban? Yeah, it's the best one. It was... So, J.K. Rowling was, like, a big fan of Ichimama Tapian. I know she's... She's canceled. She's canceled, (laughs) but she loved this movie, and she said that the third film is her favorite of all the adaptations. Well, thanks for saying that right after I said it was my favorite. You just... (laughs) (laughs) So then he follows up the Harry Potter movie with the Children of Men. That's right. Yes. Which is so underrated, I think. Got a ton of Oscar nominations and has taught a lot in film school for its editing. And Yeah. Just an amazing movie. It's one of those movies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then he, he follows that up with Gravity. Did either of you see that one? It's the Sandra Bullock, George Clooney space movie. I did. I liked it. Yeah, I did. It was fine. It kind of gets lost in my mind among all the other space movies, you know? Yeah, same. But it was good. It was suspenseful. I remember liking it. I just don't remember why. I think the reason I didn't love it is because I saw it at home. I didn't see it in the theater. And I've heard that it was a theater movie. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. I saw it in the theater. It got like 10 Oscar nominations and he won Best Director. Did he really? And was the first Mexican-born director to win the Oscar for Best Director. Yeah. Well, and then since then, Del Toro's won. Mm-hmm. Iñárritu's won. Alfonso Cuarón, Guillermo Del Toro, and Alejandro González Iñárritu are three powerhouse like auteur filmmakers mm-hmm. who call themselves the Three Amigos because they've been <laughs> friends since the 80s. And they came up together. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Each one of them started out working on the same show in Mexico that's kind of like the Twilight Zone. That's cool. They got to like write and direct and do all these different things and you're not limited to like one narrative. Like each episode you get to kind of run with a different story. And so they got to p- tackle different genres and ways of shooting. And, and the show was called La Hora Marcada. It's kind of like if you like Black Mirror, if you like Twilight Zone, this would have been your show. Another guy who works with all of these guys and worked on that show and is a huge part of why Itu Mama Tambien is great, a huge part of why all of these different movies, a lot of them, come back to this one guy. His name's Emmanuel Lubezki, and he is the cinematographer for almost all of Cuaron's movies. Really? He is prolific. I had no idea. I didn't know anything about this guy, and I was reading about him for Itu Mama Tambien and was just shocked at just all of the amazing movies this guy has worked on. And his nickname is El Chivo, which is the goat. Like the greatest of all time. <laughs> Before Itumama Tambien, he filmed like Water for Chocolate. Do you guys know that one? That was like a really big Mexican film. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But he also did Reality Bites. No. And he did The Birdcage. <laughs> no. Yes. I love those movies. Those are classics. I know. <laughs> That's amazing. He also did, I'm looking at the list now, he also did The Cat in the Hat. <laughs> the, With the, the Mike, Mike Myers. Myers cat in the Hat. <laughs> Look, hits and misses. Hits and misses. And he did the Jim Carrey series of unfortunate events. Oh my god. <laughs> well, he has the range. Sure does. <laughs> he has range. He's shot a lot of uh, Terrence Malick films, including The Tree of Life. Wow. Which has just some of the most gorgeous cinematography. Yeah. He's worked on so many Alfonso Cuarón films. He's worked with Inuritu. He shot Birdman and he shot The Revenant. Wow. Did he? I loved Birdman. I loved that movie. And so the goat, El Chivo, the thing he's currently filming is the new David O. Russell project. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. This cast is bonkers. Do you guys want to hear this cast real quick? Yes. Okay. So Christian Bale, obviously. This is a David O. Russell film. Gotta be Christian Bale. Then it's Margot Robbie, Mm. John David Washington, Rami Malek, Zoe Saldana, Robert De Niro, Timothy Oliphant, Mike Myers, Mr. Cat in the Hat himself. What? Michael Shannon, Chris <laughs> Rock. No, no, no. Anya Taylor Joy. They're losing me. No. And Taylor. This Swift. is heading into New Year's Eve or Valentine's Day territory. It's gonna be <laughs> this, this is gonna bomb. <laughs> what was the last one you said? Taylor Swift. No. From Valentine's no, no, Day. No, no, no. Shut it down. No. Shut it down right now. 
Nope. Yeah. So that's going to be a wild ride. And that's that's the forthcoming thing from El Chivo. Poor guy. But I, I definitely, I want to talk about Emmanuel Lubezki and his cinematography and just how incredible that is in Itumama yeah. Tambien. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these scenes, there's one scene that really stands out to me. Mm-hmm. You mean like the cinematography of it? Yeah, yeah, the cinematography of it. <laughs> Is the final scene. Oh, yeah. Mm. Jesse set that up for us. The boys and Louisa, they go on a road trip. They end up at the beach. Their final night, they are at a bar. They're eating, they're drinking, they're having fun. That's one long take, that entire scene. It's like seven minutes. Yeah, I think so. Yep. The boys start arguing again and talking about how to have sex with women and all this stuff, beefing again about like sleeping with each other's girlfriends. And then one of them says, y tu mama también, and your mom too. And I slept with your mom too. And then they get into a fight. At some point, Louisa gets up and she goes to the jukebox and she puts on a record. And then she turns around and she looks right into the camera and she dances across the dance floor by herself, looking right at the camera. Goes up to the boys and like brings them into a threesome dance. That's the sexiest scene in the whole movie, right there. Oh, yeah. When yep. talk about sexy, that's it. They're all clothed <laughs> and it's sexy. So that scene is a direct reference to a movie that Alfonso Caron really loves. It's called Adieu Philippine. It's from 1961, directed by Jacques Rossier. It's like a French New Wave movie. Apparently he saw it once, like I guess maybe in film school when he was younger and he was struck by how it's just this woman and she hears music being played and she just stands up and walks towards the camera dancing and looking directly at the camera. And so he really wanted that for that scene because he, it was something he could never shake as like this was the most sensual thing. That's cool. Like I think when she does that, it makes her seem really powerful yeah oh yes and that's the first time in the whole movie that she seems powerful like she makes a lot of hard decisions she's going through a lot and she has sex a few times in the movie but this is the first time where it feels like like you can feel like the full power of her being yeah she yeah she starts off the film very shy and very quiet right she's a newcomer an outsider and it's the boys who seem more in control, more overconfident. Yeah. And then over the course of the road trip, she comes out of her shell. And by the end, she's the one overpowering them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is such a great moment for it. Because it's not her looking necessarily at the boys. You feel like she's looking at you in the audience. And she's like so powerful. She's even transcending that. Which might be going too far, but that's just how I feel. <laughs> I I think so, because why else do that? Why else would that stick in the director's head so much that he would remember it and then incorporate it into one of the most pivotal scenes in a really special movie? I think that must be, that's it. I think the way that they handle sex and gender and politics is really interesting. Like, that's, that's what I love about this movie is the, the interplay between all of those things because you have these two young boys from Mexico City who between themselves one is like upper class one is working class they're 
traveling with an older woman from Spain. They're on a road trip through like rural Mexico. And there's all this sexual tension. There's like the sexual competition between the two boys. There's sexual tension between each of them and Luisa. You could even argue that there's sexual tension between the two boys themselves, like in their friendship. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like explicit in the film that there's tension between the two boys that is sexual. Even Luisa hints, more than hints, she screams it at them that for two boys who are so immature and want to talk about sex all the time, all they really want is to have sex with each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the very beginning of this the movie, they're like jerking off side by side. I mean, that's pretty... I wouldn't jerk off next to someone <laughs> unless I wanted to have sex with them. <laughs> Guys, our mother's going to listen to this. <laughs> well, it's true. There's an explicit warning on it, Frankie. Like, <laughs> oh, I'm comfortable with saying, I think our mother would agree with that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Anything we say here is not going to be as explicit as what you see if you watch this movie. <laughs> right, that's true. No, mama. Salma Hayek, cabrón. And, and all this sex in the movie, Luisa initiates it all, mm. and she is always in the dominant position. Like, yeah. when she has sex with Tenoch, I felt really uncomfortable because he was acting very childlike during that. Oh, like, he looks so young. Really upset me. The second one in the car with Julio felt a little less weird, yeah. but it still felt, like, very, very awkward. And she was still mostly in charge, but it never felt, like sexy maybe that's the big difference between that yeah. those two scenes and then the final scenes the other ones just felt kind of desperate yeah not desperate on her part but did not feel sexy i will say watching those sex scenes they felt so real and i felt so uncomfortable and i did not want to watch them i was like covering my face with my hands because it was so hard to watch it reminded me so much of like the bachelor because <laughs> It's like they felt so real. And The Bachelor, I hate it. Whenever they make out or something, it's so awkward. And it's so <laughs> gross. This is real people doing real kisses, which are gross looking. Give me some actors doing some simulated kissing. That's going to make me happy. Oh my God. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> what did you think of, like, the opening scene of Itu Mama Tambien? What is the opening scene? It's Tenoch having sex with his girlfriend in his room before she leaves for Europe. That was, like, two teenagers having sex. Like, uh, gross. <laughs> I, I don't know. What do you want me to say? What did I think of it? <laughs> I just, I thought it was interesting that it's like this kind of shaky handheld camera yeah. that's going into this room. I immediately was on edge. Right. You don't want to be seeing this. You know that it's like the cameraman is holding the camera in his hand and walks into the room and then walks out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but also just how they're talking to each other. It feels so childish. It feels so immature when they try and speak to each other and say the same words at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, like that 
mm-hmm. Fred Armisen, Kristen Wiig, SNL, mm-hmm. like, sketch. <laughs> it's like a game, right? The, the way they're talking to each other is like, don't have sex with an Italian, don't have sex with a Brazilian. Yeah, yeah. The way they're talking about it is sing-song. Yeah. And, and it's totally disconnected from the sexual act that they're really performing. Right. It's a jarring way to start the movie, and it I think it really sets the tone of things are changing here. These are people who are becoming adults. This is adolescence. It's a transition. Yeah. Yeah. It's a road trip movie, but it's it's a transitional coming of age movie. Mm -hmm. It's going to have layers. We're going to have to see what's going on. And we might not want to see all of it. Una brasileña. Alemán. Ni Argentina. Polaco. Ni de Sonora. Irlandés. Mm. Ni de Guasave. Tu padre. Like it's interesting that you you're pointing out that then that first scene they're talking about something and it doesn't quite match up with what they're doing. That happens a lot in the movie where they like talk about something it doesn't match what they're doing, or they're they're talking about something and then they should be seeing something and they're not. It's like disconnected like very disconnected from their surroundings like when they talk about their like best friends agreement that they have with each other and like their rules of being best friends and then they list all these things which include don't sleep with your friend's girlfriend and like as they're and like always tell the (laughs) truth and like everyone does their own thing like all this stuff as they're talking about them they each already know that they have each violated (laughs) all of the rules and they violate all the rules on the trip there's also the disconnection between what they see on the road trip and what they're talking about Mm -hmm. they're in the car they're going through the landscape but they're really not seeing the landscape they're so focused on themselves there's just a lot of disconnect that's exactly annie you know where Mm -hmm. i'm going with this yep right (laughs) (laughs) so slavoj zizek oh boy (laughs) slavoj zizek loves this movie and i think for exactly the reason that you're describing jesse annie sent me the link to this interview where he talks about itumama tambien so Slavoj Žižek says that Itumama Tambien is a political movie about the crisis of Mexico and that what's going on in the background in this road trip movie remains in the background and that that disconnect between these characters and their environment is almost oppressive, but that lends a message to the film that goes beyond the narrative plot and the whole thing for him is that you get a story, a political story of the adolescence of Mexico or a transitional period in Mexico happening outside the windows of the car as they drive through the countryside. And that aligns with the transitional adolescent changes going on in the characters. Yeah. So Zizek tells this joke that he uses pretty often. I sent this interview specifically to Frankie because I was like, can you explain this joke to me? Because I'm not getting it. (laughs) Zizek is talking about this movie and he he refers to this joke about, you know, let's say like in Moscow, there's this painting of 
like a woman having sex with like a young communist leader. They're having sex, and the painting is called Lenin in Warsaw because Lenin is like off, you know, touring and spreading communism. And these visitors to the museum, they see the painting and they say, Lenin in Warsaw, like, what's this painting about? You know, that's not what the image shows. And the guy goes, oh, it's about Lenin in Warsaw, <laughs> right? <laughs> so this idea of the absent object, right? So th- the image of this painting is, is showing like these two people having sex, but they're having sex because Lenin is in Warsaw. So there's like a more of a freedom there. And so it's the same thing here. Like there's a referent of the unconscious that's happening in this movie. So we're seeing like on the foreground, the story of these three people. What's happening in the background is really the story. Just like in this painting of Lenin in Warsaw, the real story is that Lenin's gone and he's in Warsaw. It's not actually about these two people having sex. That just encapsulates what's going on when Lenin's gone. Does that make sense? Yeah. (laughs) The real story is what's happening outside of the car. In the background. Right. Lenin in Warsaw is outside the car. Right. Exactly. That's the real story. And then the the people in the painting are, are in the car. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But that what's happening in the foreground is also reflecting what's happening in the background, which is the real story here. We, okay, so we have to talk about the very end of this movie to really break this part down about the political issues and developments in, in Mexico at this time, right? So the, the last scene of the movie is the, a year later, the two now young men meet up again. They talk about Luisa and so Julio learns that she died. They talk a little bit and then they part ways and they say goodbye. And then the narrator says that they never see each other again. And it's a really it's a really sad ending. Right? I mean, it really hits you. The narrator says they never see each other again. And then it goes back to the scene. And they say, yeah, I'll see you around. Yeah. And they say, sure. That's a huge part of, like, Zizek's take on it. What he calls the malevolent neutrality of the narrator. Yeah. Like, the bitterness in that is what really underscores the parallel messages and, and narratives going on in the movie. Is that there's, like, a fundamental bitterness of maturity. Tenoch se disculpó. Su novia lo esperaba para ir al cine. Julio insistió en pagar la cuenta. Nunca volverán a verse. Nos hablamos, ¿no? Sí. I think you can try to understand this the background of what's going on in Mexico through this story where you have the upper class boy, you have the middle class boy, you have the Spanish woman and their dynamics, and this question of maturity. And the whole beginning of this movie, they're all, especially the boys, right? They're on this journey of, like, hedonism, decadence. They don't really care about other people. They talk about women in a certain way. They're about drugs and partying, chasing pleasure. And the climax at the end, when they have, like, a homosexual encounter, like, a moment that night, which is almost like the peak of this chase of pleasure, then they reach maturity after that because they were chasing this this whole time and they reach it, they achieve it, and yet, like, where do you go from there? And then they have to settle into the reality of life, which is that that can't continue in their world. And so when they meet up again, how can they stay friends? How can they acknowledge this? You know, they also have to return to a world where they come from different classes. They don't get the freewheeling time of youth where you get to hang out with people from high school who may be different backgrounds. You know, like, you grow up and you fall into your your circles. The summer has to end. Exactly. It's not an endless summer. Yeah. Yeah. In the script, when they kiss, it says that they share a kiss of love. 
I love that so much because it's almost like this is the true expression of their friendship. Like whether it's like a sexual encounter or not, it's still like a a real encounter that they're sharing. Yes. And ultimately it does destroy them and their friendship. Yeah. Gael Garcia Bernal said that that description in the script, calling it a kiss of love, is his favorite thing he's ever read in any of the scripts he's done. Because he said that that carried more weight than anything he's ever read. Well, it's such a beautiful scene. The whole last part is so well acted. I think they they did a really good job, the last stretch of that movie. Well, talking about the political aspect, did we go over their names and who they're named after? No, we didn't. And that's really interesting. It's so cool. Yeah, so like in the the political themes in this movie are so strong that they're embodied in the characters' names themselves. So you have Luisa, who's Spanish. She's a foreigner. She's come to Mexico. Her last name is Cortez, which is the name of a Spanish conquistador, right? Right. And then Julio, his last name is Zapata. Yeah. And that's like the Zapatistas, right? Which were a revolutionary group striving for social equality. Yeah, I mean, Zapata was a, a leader of the Mexican Revolution. Like, even in the 90s, there were these big protests and demonstrations of, like, Zapatistas, and they're kind of, like, anti-globalization, anti-neoliberal democracy kind of stuff. Gael Garcia Bernal himself, like, went to Zapatista demonstrations. Wow. Interesting. The student demonstrations and the youth demonstrations are included in the movie. Like, his character, Julio Zapata's older sister, is also, like, a protester. And when he has to go get the car from his sister. <laughs> right. Yeah. And right, they yeah. like, shot it in the midst of a real protest that wasn't made for the film that was really going on that day. And they're just like, oh, this is such an inconvenience to us. Now we have to go search for her and go through all these stupid protesters. Well, and then Tenoch, his name is actually from an indigenous word. It's from the the name of the ruler of the Mexica people, the, the Aztec people and it actually comes from the words for rock and prickly pear which are symbols for the mexica people which are on mexico's flag wow and then his last name is actually like a very spanish colonist name so it's this interesting tension between the two groups that made modern mexico interesting and they talk in the movie even the character they talk about how his parents named him Tenoch because his father got a government job and was becoming a part of the the party, uh, the PRI. So they wanted to show off a bit of nationalism. Alfonso Cuaron wanted to like tie together within the name corruption of that higher class government family. And then the story that's going on in the background, which is supposed to be the main story, the Lenin and Warsaw of it, a lot of them really stick out in my memory. But the first one that we really see is when the boys are driving somewhere and they're like, oh, all this traffic, it's from these student protests. But really, it's because there was an accident because a pedestrian was hit. And the narrator tells us that the pedestrian was a bricklayer who had come to the city for work and he was trying to get a shortcut so that he didn't have to walk a mile out of his way to get to the pedestrian overpass because he was trying to get to work. And they're totally oblivious to someone who has died because he's trying to find work. He's trying to access work without the infrastructure that the government could provide. And that's just in the first 10 minutes of the movie. Yeah. 
you see these outside stories because you have this omniscient narrator who is outside of the time and place of the movie who can tell you what's going on because he can see everything that's happened and everything that will happen. So at the very end, when the boys and Louisa are on the beach and they meet this family that has a boat and they're fishermen and they take them on a tour and all this stuff. And he tells you where the family is a year from then and that the family has been displaced because their home has been sold to make way for a seaside hotel and that they have to move to the big city and the father gets a job as a janitor and he never fishes again. You know, you see them in this like simple life that they're living right now, but then you know in the future this will all be completely destroyed because of the economy of the country and, and the region in which they're living. Yeah. I love the device of the narrator in this movie. And it was pretty jarring at first because, you know, it is so disconnected and it is giving you so much insight beyond, you know, this main storyline that we're following. And every time a narration starts, you have maybe two seconds of silence. Yeah. Where you're still just watching the visual of these characters and their storyline but it's silent and it and it's like alienating you from their storyline and pulling you up into the insights he the narrator is going to give the audience i mean i think it's really effective i didn't love it but it it did what it needed to do it caught my attention it drew me away how else would these guys have been able to get so much of that information into this movie Yeah. yeah yeah like you need to have a narrator in this movie and I watched an interview with Alfonso Caron's brother, Carlos Caron, who co-wrote this script with him. And he talked about writing the script together and how they basically took two weeks and they would spend all day every day writing. And then at night they would watch movies that were their references. Hmm. Alfonso said, well, we need a narrator. And Carlos was like, I don't want to do some like nostalgia, like the Wonder right. Years, like nonsense. <laughs> like that works for the Wonder Years, and that's a perfectly fine show. That's not the movie I want to make. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so then Alfonso was like, "Yeah, but why don't we make it like a Godard movie? Why don't we make it like a French New Wave?" And then he sat him down and made him watch Godard's Masculine Feminine. Yeah. And Carlos made it five minutes into the movie before he said, okay, I get it. Like, <laughs> I can write this. Like, <laughs> That's great. Well, the trick is that the narrator isn't narrating the story. He's narrating outside the story that you're seeing. Right. Exactly. But he said, I wanted the narrator to be clinical. It needed to give context to our characters, needed to give context to our places, but it's just providing information that we want to provide and contextualizing the environment and the transience of everything. I love this movie. I think it's perfect. I mean, I don't know that there's anything I think is... Well, I mean, let's talk about that. Like, Jesse, you say you don't necessarily love the narration uh, as a device. I love what it does. Yeah. Like, I don't like the sound of two seconds of silence, but I love how it operates in this movie. Like, it's not pretty, but it it's really effective. The ending, I don't want to label anyone in this movie because I don't necessarily think that there is a commentary to really be made on their sexuality, right? I think this is an experience they have and 
they feel like they can't explore it any further, right? That that is the end of their journey. Mm. But I was really thinking a lot about Portrait of a Lady on Fire and the ending of that movie and this feeling that with maturity comes these, you know, this growing apart. In both stories, the mature thing to do is to accept that you have different paths. Yeah. And move on. And how sad and how real that is. And in both of these, I mean, the it's the machismo that pulls them apart. Like, they can't yeah. just accept that they had this encounter and say, well, yeah. it's this doesn't make me gay. This doesn't make me any one particular way. This is an experience yeah. that I have with another human being who may, means a lot to me, and I'm going to move forward, and we can continue our friendship. They're like taking in all this messaging from society about men and like men need to have sex with women and you know and their and their class and all of that i was gonna say i think actually this is less about machismo i mean it's definitely a, a component an important one to me it seems more like it's about just different paths in life in terms of class like what are they supposed to do <laughs> run off together and, and live a different life i mean they they come from so very different backgrounds like, and th- another thing the narrator does, right, is provide us with that information that especially as people who are less culturally familiar with the setting and the period mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. helps us understand, a li- like, some of these differences between the two boys. Because, like, at first glance, I wouldn't have necessarily guessed that there was this class divide. But with the narration, you know, he says, like, he would flush the toilet with his foot mm-hmm. when he was in Julio's bathroom. And, like, these little details that flesh out the things that make them not really compatible in their lives long term. It's like machismo, but it's also class and society pulling them apart beyond machismo. Yeah, it's a whole, it's the whole package. It's the yeah. whole, the whole of society. And it's like they live in this little bubble of their friendship. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with the bubble of the car when they're driving through the countryside where you know they're traveling through all of these different scenes that we see unfold in the background and they're not affected by it whatsoever Mm -hmm. so much of this movie i just love all of the parallels yeah yeah on so many levels and these bubbles or you know all the different transitions that are going on telling the story of this transition in mexico but through a transition of like boys to men and the bitter nature of it, of popping that bubble and not going back. Mm. Oh, God. That ending really gets me. It really gets me. <laughs> Just like with the portrait of a lady on fire, really, it hits you so hard. <laughs> but, with this, but with this, you know, portrait of a lady on fire, that ending is at least a little bit hopeful, right? Because she smiles at the end. Yeah, she smiles through the tears. In this one, it's just, these men are now, they're now men. Like, that is the end of something that summer. They will never feel like that again. Yeah, they're both at university. Tenoch is studying economics when he spent the car ride talking about how he didn't want to study economics because it's stupid, but it's what his dad wanted him to do. And now that's what he's doing. Anything else you want to cover, Annie? There's so many shots in this movie where it is the wide angle at the end before the diner scene where we see them sitting at the table. It's this wide angle shot far away and you see the two of them almost walk past each other on a crosswalk. (sighs) 
And I was watching that scene and I was just trying to figure out, well, where does my eye go? Where's the action? What am I looking for here? Like, I almost lost them in that image in the same way that they could have just easily missed each other. And I really love the beach scenes. Oh, yeah. I love, you know, that they're messing around and that they make up a, a fake idyllic beach when they first meet her to impress her and they bounce off each other and come up with the name like heaven's mouth yeah and then they eventually get there they just happen to keep driving until they're tired and then when they stop they end up at a beach and then the fisherman takes them on the boat and says yeah i'm gonna take you to heaven's mouth and then they just happen to find these places and stumble into a reality that they had totally fabricated for themselves like one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is when Louisa gets out of the car while the two boys are still asleep and she's on the beach and you realize, oh, they've made it. And <laughs> her just walking into the water and she still has her jeans on. And so there's so many references to French New Wave movies in Itu Mama Tambien. But that is my favorite because one of my favorite French New Wave movies is The 400 Blows yes. by yep. Francois Truffaut, which has just one of the best endings to any movie ever. And it's uh, the protagonist of that movie, a boy who's on a beach and he like sees the water. And Alfonso Cuaron has said that that scene, that moment in Itu Mama Tambien is a reference to The 400 Blows. And it's just like this overwhelming feeling of, you know, reaching this place and what's next. Like, what could be next? And for Louisa, her character, we've been talking so much about these boys, about Tenoch and Julio. Oh, and, yeah. But Louisa's character... She is from Spain. She comes to Mexico. She's in a country, not her country. And she finds out that her husband's been cheating on her nonstop. And that's not really the thing that's bothering her, right? It's that she's been given a terminal diagnosis. And she just walks away, runs away from her life with these two, like, idiot teenagers. Because she's just so desperate to get away from kind of this, like crushing loneliness yeah that moment on the beach she's by herself but she's also coming into a space where she can feel content with her reality and the fact that she is about to die you know we talked about the scene late just after that where they're in the beach bar and she dances to the camera and she's totally in command of herself and the camera and us as the audience mm -hmm. and i just love her journey and it's so sad they don't tell you explicitly that she is dying but you can pick up on it throughout you see her crying and you could either interpret it as her crying at the dissolution of her marriage or you could infer that it is what it actually is about and that's impending death and uh yeah and i just love all the scenes of her on the beach and the final time the audience sees her just going into the water yeah yeah so beautiful to me that was all about how she was lonely because she was unhappy because she wasn't doing what she wanted to be doing and she was with someone who didn't appreciate her and at least even when she's on the beach and she's surrounded by, by people that she doesn't know, she's still able to make connections and have adventures. And she seemed like she really felt like she was herself. Sometimes I think it's easier to feel lonelier when you're around people that don't appreciate you mm -hmm. in a situation where you feel stifled. 
and you feel less lonely when you're able to really be yourself, even if you're not necessarily surrounded by other people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like she was able to exercise that independence and finally do something for herself. And I think that that's what she was seeking. She had, I mean, her backstory is that she nursed her aunt while she was ill for many years. She picked a profession that was just quick and easy to get certified and get a job. She married the second guy that she really dated. Like she just kind of like tripped along through life. And then after a certain point in this movie, she's making all these decisions. She's deciding. So Annie, why why did you pick this movie for our the last movie in our summer series? Like what was it about this that felt summery to you? Itamama Tambien is a story of you know, a summer where at the end of it they're everything changes for them Mm -hmm. and it's it's hot there's heat you know that summer some of the best scenes are on the beach or by the water there's humor and there are adventures summer road trip yeah and then at the end you feel sad that it's over because you know there is no endless summer this can't keep going on and you feel bitter at the end that you have to let it go I still maintain one of us should have done body heat. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go to recommendations. So I'm going to start. I'm going to start with my first recommendation. And I'm going to recommend a movie that we mentioned earlier, which is called Amores Peros, um, directed by Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu, and was the film that got Gael Garcia Bernal the role in Itumama Tambien. So this movie came out in the year 2000 and is like two and a half hours long. It's kind of hard to watch, not in the awkward sense that some of the scenes in Itumama Tambien were a little hard to watch. It's just kind of like harsh, it's like raw, but it was huge on the festival circuit and you know, Inuritu is one of the three amigos with Alfonso Caron and Guillermo del Toro. And Amores Peros is kind of the, the piece that they reference as what allowed Mexican auteur filmmaking to like break onto the international scene. Yeah, I'd watch it for Gael Garcia Bernal. That is what I'm recommending because it's one of those unforgettable performances and you totally understand why Quaron was like, I can't have anyone else. I need this kid. Mm. So it's one of those. It's a little hard to watch, but I recommend it. If if watching Itumama Tambien or hearing us talk about this movie is making you interested in other like Mexican films from the time, that's what I would check out. Amores Peros or Loves a Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a, a second recommendation. This is a, a comedy that came out in 2008, starring Diego Luna and Gael Garcia Bernal what? as two brothers. Yeah, it's called Rudo y Cursi, which is like rude and tacky. And these are the two nicknames for the brothers. Diego Luna, his character's nickname is Rudo. He's the rude one. And Gael Garcia Bernal is Cursi. He's the tacky or corny one. <laughs> but it's it was written and directed by Carlos Cuarón who co-wrote Itumao Tambien. Oh, wow. And it was produced by the Three Amigos. This is a movie that I hadn't heard of before watching this Itumao Tambien for the podcast. And then I went and watched it because I was trying to learn all about this group of guys and uh, found this movie. And Diego and Gael play two brothers who 
play soccer and want to be famous and it's a comedy they work on like a banana plantation which is actually owned by the Quaron family huh. like where they they shoot the movie yeah but it's about soccer and there's this like really intense penalty kick scene in it <laughs> And when we recorded this episode, uh, I had just watched the Euro Cup final. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Here in London. Yeah. <laughs> between England and Italy, which also came down to these really intense penalty kicks. And uh, yeah, I laughed a lot more at Rudo e Corsi than I did at the Euro Cup final. Okay. But. <laughs> <laughs> So Amores Peros for a bit of the heavier movie and Rudo y Corsi for more of the humor and lightheartedness that you do get a bit of in Itumama Tambien. So whichever direction you liked better in this movie, you have two recommendations of more movies to check out from these guys. Cool. Great. Frankie? Sure. Um, Okay, I also have a couple. (laughs) My first is similar to Annie's, and I'm not going to speak too long on it. It's the 2004 biopic The Motorcycle Diaries, where Gael Garcia Bernal plays Che Guevara. It's an adaptation of Guevara's memoirs of when he was 23. He and his best friend took a road trip on their motorcycle uh, through South America. And it's about his journey of observation and radicalization after he saw poverty and economic inequality across South America. It's also a coming-of-age story. It's an interesting depiction of different Latin American identities. And if you like Gallo Garcia Bernal in this movie, you definitely need to see The Motorcycle Diaries. Yes, agreed. My other recommendation... My other recommendation is going to be... I feel like sometimes I I say this and you guys disagree. I'm like, oh, this can be a controversial one. <laughs> You're like, oh, it's not that controversial. My second <laughs> uh, recommendation is going to be the 2003 film... The Dreamers by Bernardo Bertolucci. Uh, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, this movie, it's, it's you know, it's love it or hate it. I get it. <laughs> Another threesome. It's, <laughs> and it tells the story of a young American college student played by Michael Pitt who goes to Paris and engages in an erotic triad. With a brother and sister, <laughs> <laughs> who are played by Eva Green and Louis Garrel. Louis Garrel from Little Women. No way. Professor Bear at Little Women. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a hot brother-sister. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it all takes place against the backdrop of the 1968 student riots mm. in Paris. And so it's also, in some ways, you know, this, you know, Lenin and Warsaw kind of story where it's about freewheeling sexuality and eroticism that is then brought down and what that looks like against the backdrop of political instability and change um it's very like if you if you can't watch e to mama tambien do not watch the dreamers because it's even more intense (laughs) but it's good yeah Um, i like it and then so those are my two recommendations for this movie and i have a very quick recommendation if you like this movie and The Talented Mr. Ripley. And I just want to quickly recommend, if you like these two movies, check out Burning, the 2018 South Korean film directed by Lee Chang Dong. It's about a young Korean man who has a crush on a girl that he knew in school, like a childhood friend. 
and she enters a relationship with an affluent man played by Stephen Yoon, but then she disappears, and then it becomes about the relationship between these two guys, and it's about the class divide in Korea. It's a psychological drama. There's a little mm-hmm. homoeroticism. If you like E to Mama Tambien and you liked Town to Mr. Ripley, you're looking for something in that vein, check out Burning. Great recommendations. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I'm going to go watch Burning. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Jesse, take us home. All right, so mine is not similar to your recommendations <laughs> at all. It's not a movie. Good. <laughs> One thing that I've learned about myself in recent months, recent years, is that I love watching food videos, food content. I love it. I love food personalities on YouTube specifically. Love it. And then I love to follow them on Instagram, watch their Instagram stories where they make their food or they talk about their lives or whatever else. Love it. One person that I adore is Rick Martinez, and he has recently moved. He's Mexican. He lived in New York City for a while. He recently moved back to Mexico. He bought a house in Mazatlan, which is beach town in Mexico on the Pacific coast. It's way, way, way further north than the beaches where uh, Itumama Tam Band takes place, but it still it gives me that mm. like that great beach feel uh, that this mm. movie gave me. His Instagram is Rick underscore Andrew underscore Martinez, and he has <laughs> great Instagram stories about his rescue dog named Chaco, how he's been redoing his adorable, beautiful home in Mazatlan, and all of the food that he loves to make his beautiful like clay pottery that he uses to display all the beautiful food, his adventures in eating, and the big excitement is that he now has a YouTube series called Prebolo, 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 Pruebolo, which is, <laughs> which means- What's it called? <laughs> it's called, it's called Prebolo. <laughs> and it means try it. And it's like you cook something and then you say, pray below, try it. Mm. And oh. it's part of the Babish culinary universe. <gasps> the first episode dropped recently and it's great. He makes langostino tacos and he goes around to different like food shops and tries the food. He goes out and he actually catches the food, brings it back to his house and prepares it and wow. then eats it with a friend. And it's delightful. Oh. The cinematography is gorgeous. That's one of the other things I love about YouTube is seeing how you can do a lot with just a little bit of equipment. You don't need like a full Hollywood production in order mm-hmm. to capture the light beautifully or to have a really cool camera angle and tell a story in a really dynamic captivating way follow rick martinez follow his youtube channel go to his website find his recipes cook them (laughs) he has recipes and videos on food 52 he used to write for bon appetit and he's got a ton of recipes on his website which is rick-martinez.com love today's recommendations all Thanks for listening today, everybody. Hope you enjoyed our discussion of Itu Mama Tambien. In two weeks' time, we will be back with a free Relin episode where we chat about all things 
from our summer series and reveal the theme for next series. Keep up the conversation. Chat with us on Instagram or Twitter at CinemaSilopod. Head over to our website at CinemaSilopod.com to read our show notes and link to all the wonderful things we've been talking about today. Feel free to rate, review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your lovely podcasts. Thank you again for listening today. We'll see you next time in the silo. title of this movie is like Itumama Tambian. Do you think he really had sex with No. With his mom or do you think it was like a like a and and your mama like like that kind of a thing like a taunt? <laughs> Jesse. Like what do you I, What? <laughs> <laughs>